This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Over the past month or so, our lectionary has been taking us through the Gospel of Luke and focusing especially on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and a servant of the kingdom of God. And these stories have been full of hard sayings, places where Jesus puts pressure on us in exactly those places where we are weakest, where our loyalty to him is most vulnerable, where we find it difficult to let go of the places where we find security and solace so that we might be totally self-dedicated to him. Today's reading is absolutely no exception. And this passage is, shall we say, hard to square with live your best life now and three steps to a victorious life style preaching that is quite popular in American Christianity. It's hard to imagine a prosperity gospel preacher standing up and preaching on Lazarus and the unnamed rich man. And it may surprise you to know, by contrast, that the ancient church loved this story. If you look at the go-to passages that were regularly preached on in the ancient church, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man was among the most popular. It was, moreover, definitely understood to be good news. And it was seen as a paradigmatic illustration of everything that made the way of Jesus distinctive from every other philosophy and way of life. It was not only a warning and a hard word from Jesus, but a word with the power to break the hearts of the unfeeling rich and make them love their poor brothers and sisters. It was also a word that lifted up and ennobled and transformed the poor. So I actually want each of us to feel that same sense of exultation when we read a passage like this. But I think it's difficult for many of us because, as Andy Crouch and Kate Bowler and many others have said, in America, even if you reject the prosperity gospel, soft versions of it keep creeping in in subtle ways. Like our cities are designed in such a way as to facilitate the most minimal points of contact between rich and poor. And the advertisements that we are bombarded with constantly are encouraging us constantly to indulge ourselves. If we're being honest, the message that was constantly reinforced to us is to dress in purple, right, metaphorically speaking, and to feast sumptuously on a daily basis like the rich man in this passage. It's very uncomfortable. It takes intentionality to push back on all of this. And so it's hard to feel anything other than guilt and shame as we read this passage if we're serious Christians. But I want you to know this. The Holy One of Israel loves us here in America too. He does not condemn us. He has called us by name, and we are his, and he is ours. And so this morning, we have to do two things simultaneously. We have to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to let the full force of this story hit us head on. We can't dodge it or evade it or not listen to its message. But we need to read this story and hear this story as people who Jesus has bought with the price of his precious blood, back from sin, death, and the devil. We are his. And if we can do these things together, I think we can hear this story as good news. So let's look at the text. 
You all know that when I preach on the Gospels, I always want us to understand the author's intentions and including the story where he does in the Gospel and for including the details that he does in the story. If we don't grasp these details and we don't grasp where it fits in the story, we actually won't understand the point of the story at all. We'll miss how the story fits in the overall story of Jesus. But I think perhaps more importantly, we will be susceptible to false teachers who want to use these stories for their own purposes. We will be blown about by every passing wind of doctrine, as St. Paul says, rather than being built up into maturity in Christ, which is the point of the inclusion of this story in the Gospel of Luke. So this passage, the first thing we have to grasp is that this passage is one of Jesus' many parables. And the most important thing we have to know if we want to understand the parables that Jesus tells is who Jesus' intended audience is. When he tells a story, he's always telling it to someone or against someone. The stories, in other words, are not intended to be universally, universally applicable, but only applicable to the specific group of people to whom he is speaking. So when you read one of Jesus' parables, always look first to see who he's talking to. And of course, our lectionary has like excised that little bit, so we don't actually know who he's telling the story to. But I'll tell you. So the parable of Lazarus and the rich man comes just after that parable that we heard last week of the unjust steward. And Canon Jonathan preached on that text, opened it up for us. That parable was addressed to the disciples telling those who had given up everything to follow Jesus that they must also make friends with unrighteous mammon. In other words, they had to learn to use a resource which is inherently hazardous for the purposes of the kingdom. And this parable, by contrast, is addressed to the Pharisees. In the parable of the unjust steward, Jesus is highlighting, shall we say, the light side of money, talking about how money can be used positively. In this parable, he's highlighting the shadow side of money, to those who were lovers of money. Because you see, the Pharisees overheard Jesus speaking the parable of the unjust steward to the disciples. It wasn't addressed to them, but they overheard it. They were dropping eaves. And they respond to this story by mocking it or sneering at it because it, the text says they loved money. And Jesus responds to them quite directly by saying exactly that in verse 15. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. In other words, you love money, you're sneering at my teaching, you've had your reward. The Pharisees who love money are addicted to the status and the prestige that money brings. They think that their money is a blessing from God that's a response to their own righteousness. And they assume the opposite is also true, that poverty is a curse from God. So they look down on those who are poor. So Jesus, understanding that this is the state of their hearts, tells them a story about the heart of God and about their own hearts. This story is remarkable for many reasons. First, unlike Jesus' other parables, only Luke tells this one. This is the one that's only included in Luke. And that is because Luke glories in the fact that when Jesus came, he gave dignity to the poor, and the poor found a place to belong and to serve in Jesus' church. And secondly, because in Jesus' other parables, he never names the characters. But in this story, Jesus actually does name someone, Lazarus. Lazarus is a shortened form of the name Eliezer, which in Hebrew means God helps. It's an ironic name. 
This detail is pretty important. Because although the rich man is unfeeling and devoid of compassion to Lazarus, although the rich man is not Lazarus' helper, God is his helper. After his torment here below, which he endures at the hands of the rich man, he is comforted in the bosom or at the side of Abraham. It's also interesting that he names the poor man Lazarus, which is the same name as his good friend, the brother of Martha and Mary. And commentators throughout the centuries have read these two texts together. The story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and and John chapter 11 and this story here of Lazarus and the rich man. These stories seem to go together in some ways. Remember, Jesus is telling this story as well to the Pharisees who loved money. And the point here is to stress to them how much this poor man matters to God and how little the status and the security that their wealth brings them actually matters to God. It doesn't matter at all to God. In fact, the status and the security that they receive, Jesus is saying, is actually a hindrance to the Pharisees knowing God and giving themselves to the priorities of the kingdom. And so when he tells this story, he sets up these contrasts between the rich man and Lazarus. And these contrasts are vivid and striking. The rich man dresses in purple, which is a sign of great wealth in the ancient world. And he feasts sumptuously, the text says, on a daily basis. The fact that he lives behind a gate is striking. Not only because it's a further sign of his great wealth and his isolation from the poverty of Lazarus, but it's also striking for its biblical symbolism. The idea of the gate in the thought of the prophets is really important. It's the place where justice is carried out to the poor. Amos 5.15 says and that he commands Israel, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. If Israel is able to do this, if it's able to establish justice in the gate, Amos says, the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So that justice that is done in the gate, that is performed in the gate, is a sign of Israel's loyalty to God. It's loyalty to the covenant. But the gate here is not a place of justice for the poor, but rather it only serves to hide the rich man from his own humanity as it's reflected back to him in Lazarus. It's not that the rich man is ignorant of Lazarus or his condition, actually. We see this in verse 24 because the rich man knows Lazarus' name. Lazarus is known to the rich man. But being known to someone is not the same thing as being known known by someone. Do you get that distinction? Being known to someone is not the same thing as being known by someone. Lazarus, by contrast, dresses in rags. He has no food to eat. His body is covered with sores, which actually is probably a reference to leprosy in this text. And again, this marks an important contrast with the rich man who outwardly is in very good health, but he has a heart that is leprous, a heart that is unfeeling and uncompassionate and so deeply sick. Y'all know how leprosy works. It's a bacteria that attacks the nerves and it it causes unfeelingness. Those who have leprosy are no longer able to feel their extremities and so they're very vulnerable to injury. And the rich man's heart is attacked in the same way by his great wealth. A person who has ceased to be able to to feel one's extremities, as in the case of leprosy, is in very dire straits. But the scriptures here tell us that a person who can no longer experience compunction, who can no longer be stung in his or her conscience, is actually in a far more desperate situation. 
The seared conscience, the leprous conscience, is a much more desperate situation. And that is the situation of this rich man in striking contrast to Lazarus. So as Lazarus sits at the gate of the rich man, the dogs come and they lick his wounds. And again, this is an ironic detail that Jesus is including. Although Lazarus gets no sympathy from the rich man, the dogs are compassionate to him. But the dogs, again, exercise a symbolic function in this story. In the ancient world, dogs always ate table scraps if they were cared for. And Lazarus, it says, longs to eat those scraps from the rich man's table. The dog that lick his wounds are emblematic of how Lazarus sees himself as a poor man. In his poverty, he sees himself as having only the dignity of a dog who eats table scraps. But the rich man, in denying him even these scraps, implicitly sees him as of even less value than the dogs. I mean, Jesus is making this so painful, so uncomfortable, that the Pharisees have to listen, right? The rich man, to sum up, is grinding the face of the poor, as the prophet Isaiah puts it. For the rich to treat the poor in this way, Isaiah is saying, and Jesus following him, is to violently remove the image of God that has been stamped on their faces. That's what that violent image is drawing our attention to in Isaiah. It is to see them, but not to see their humanity. But beginning with death, the roles of the rich man and Lazarus begin to be reversed. The rich man receives a burial. You know, it's accompanied by the fading splendor and the trappings of this world, we must assume. But he goes down to Hades. And Lazarus, by contrast, suffers his final indignity in death. The text is silent about what happens to him, but we may presume from the continued contrast between the rich man and Lazarus that Lazarus is either not buried at all or he's buried in an unmarked pauper's grave. But he's carried by an angel from there to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. And now the reversal is complete. And Lazarus is in the place of paradise. And the rich man is in the place of torment. And as the rich man looks up, he sees Lazarus at Abraham's side. And he says to Abraham, My father, send Lazarus to me so he can dip his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony. Commentators throughout history have understood this moment as the hinge of the passage. It's almost the punchline of the passage, because it reveals that the rich man continues to suffer from leprosy of the heart. He continues to see Lazarus in exactly the same way as he did during his life, as his inferior. He is still looking at Lazarus and seeing someone with no honor and no dignity who is by nature the rich man's servant. So the 5th century bishop of Ravenna, a man named Peter Christologus, preached a number of really gorgeous sermons on this passage. And in one of them, he says this about the rich man's request. As I see the matter, the rich man's actions spring not from new pain, but from ancient envy. It is not his present pain in Hades, in the place of torment, that sparks the request for relief. But rather, it's his envy at seeing his place and Lazarus's place reversed. Chrysologus continues, Men find it a grave evil and an unbearable fire to see in happiness those whom they once held in contempt. In other words, the rich man is continuing to fail to see Lazarus's equal humanity with himself. It's a critical detail that the rich man does not beg mercy from Lazarus, but from Abraham. Lazarus continues to be contemptible 
in the rich man's eyes. Not worthy, actually, of personal address. But as a good Israelite, he sees Abraham as his father and Lord. And so he asks his Lord to send this lowly peon, Lazarus, to come and relieve him in his anguish. But Abraham rebukes him, revealing that the one the rich man despised is not only his equal as a human being, but now has become his Lord as well. If the rich man had changed his opinion of Lazarus, he would have begged Lazarus to bring him to paradise rather than asking Abraham to send Lazarus to him. As Christologus puts it, he does not ask to be led to Lazarus, but wants Lazarus to be led to him. That is the crucial detail of this story. Because Abraham is now Lazarus's protector. God is Lazarus's helper. And Abraham is the instrument in God's hands. God will not allow Lazarus, who has spent his life in torment and degradation, to continue to be treated like a servant on the far side of death. That's what Abraham says. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. There is, moreover, a chasm fixed between them, so that they cannot come to the rich man, and the rich man cannot come to them. But the chasm that has been fixed, it is clear from this text, has been fixed by the heart of the rich man itself. His heart has been corrupted by his wealth and the way that he has handled his wealth. And his continued low estimation of Lazarus, even in the place of torment, is the bad fruit which evidences the corruption of his heart. Jesus tells us that bad fruit comes from bad trees and good fruit comes from good trees. And likewise, a heart that is corrupt produces corrupt actions. And a heart that has been justified and sanctified produces good fruit. And so the bad fruit of the rich, the rich man's envy tells us that the chasm is nothing other than the unredeemed corruption of his own heart. The flames of his torment is the burning of his envy, seeing what he can no longer possess by virtue of his great wealth. So the rich man stands condemned, not because of his wealth, but because of the unfeelingness and the failure of his compassion. His heart has become leprous because it has become corrupted by his riches. It is critical to remember Jesus' audience again here. He has just told the disciples that it is important to use the riches to serve the kingdom. Jesus does not condemn the rich as such. And this is important to stress because Jesus is not Che Guevara no matter how much our contemporaries want him to be. Jesus does not hate the rich and ideal, idealistically romanticize the poor. Look at the contrast between the figures. The contrast is between one rich man and another rich man, Abraham. Abraham himself was a man of great wealth. And many of the ancient commentators on this text pointed out, but a distinction is drawn implicitly between the way in which Abraham held his wealth as a steward of the kingdom, and the way in which the rich man in our passage holds his wealth. Augustine says that the rich should not fear wealth, but greed. They should not be afraid of goods, but of greed. Let them possess wealth like Abraham, therefore, and let them possess it with faith. Let them have it, possess it, and not be possessed by it. Do you see the distinction between those two things? This parable is not about wealth per se, but about what wealth does to the human person. I've already alluded to this, but wealth is an inherently dangerous commodity. It is, we might say, a radioactive substance that must be carefully handled. Its effects are inflated status, 
inflated self-perception, and numbness and leprosy of the soul. Only with great difficulty, therefore, can we defeat the power of wealth in our lives. And Jesus is warning us here that there is a profound struggle to be waged against the effects of wealth in this life because it is a God which competes with Jesus for our loyalty. He names it as a God, if you'll remember, in that passage from last week. He calls it mammon. That is its proper name as an idol. And the warning is this, unless we're willing to profane this God of wealth by giving our money away generously, by sharing our resources, it will actually be our God. It will engender in us the same spiritual leprosy that we see in the rich man in this story. We will become hardened and cynical about the poor and see them as less human than ourselves. What Jesus is saying here is that money can either be a servant or a master, but it cannot be neutral. And there will be for us a lifelong struggle to force money to serve rather than to rule in our lives. St. Paul reinforces this teaching in Timothy today, in his first letter to Timothy. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, he says just before our passage. And then he tells Timothy to command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or haughty, as the NRSV puts it, or to put their hope in their wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. And then he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, rich not just in wealth, but in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Again, a massive reinforcement of what Jesus is saying with his parable here today. St. Paul is simply reiterating the teaching of Christ. We must profane the God mammon by giving our money away generously so that it may serve and not rule. So remember what I said when we started. We need to do two things when we read this passage. We need to be hit by the full force of it, right? I hope I've done some justice to this passage today. It's a hard word from Jesus. It is a hard call to be disciples of Jesus with our money. But we need to hear it as those for whom Jesus has died. We need to take comfort in the fact that Jesus did not hate the Pharisees and he did not idealize the poor. He has told this story against the Pharisees not in order to condemn them. And he definitely did not tell it in order to commend the kind of abject poverty that Lazarus endured. That poverty is something to be lamented in this age. Instead, Jesus has told this story to the Pharisees to awaken them to their great danger, which is that their hearts have become frozen and incapable of the compassion that the Lord says is evidence that they are loyal to him. And he sounds an alarm because he's unwilling to surrender the Pharisees to a life given over to the accumulation of wealth and status, at least not without a fight. And he is patient as the Spirit does the slow work of transforming the hearts of the rich so that they look like his. Like the rich man, all of us who live in America are in danger of this chasm becoming fixed in our hearts. The whole way in which we live is set up to to cement this chasm in our hearts. And I know many of you fight back on it on a daily basis. You struggle with this. And I do not want you to hear this passage in a discouraging way. This parable is actually meant to encourage us that the work that the Lord is doing in our hearts is to help us to see the poor, to see our common humanity reflected in them, and to love them in the way that Jesus did. 
We are meant to be transformed into the image and likeness of Christ. That is the goal and the destiny of the Christian life. And we can have encouragement in this because we believe that the one who for our sake assumed human flesh and lived life that we could not live loves us and is giving us his own humanity. He endured death for our sake. He even entered into Hades for our sake, the place of torment for our sake. And he rose victorious from the grave in the resurrection so that the power of sin and death in our lives could be defeated forever. And he has united us, moreover, to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. He loves us and he is for us. And therefore, we are not in the same position as the rich man. We believe that as we gather here today in worship, as we hear the word preached, as we celebrate this Eucharist together, the Lord is here and he is with us. He is bringing his transformative power to bear on our hearts. Money does not rule over us. The Lord Jesus rules over us. And this morning, I want you to put your hope in that. There really is a war going on over our hearts, but the battle has already been decisively won by Jesus. Money desires to rule over us, and we must fight back on that so that only Christ reigns supreme in our hearts. But we can have confidence that that is exactly what's happening because the Lord is more powerful than money. We are not alone. We do not work with our own power. We work with the power of his sovereign and supreme grace in our lives. The Lord is with us and he is for us. Amen.